Good morning, church. You happy to be at City Church today? Good. If you're new to City Church, welcome. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here. Did you guys miss me last week? I missed you. But Mike gave such a great message, didn't he? Just thank Mike for sharing last week. As many of you guys know, City Church is one church meeting in five locations, so we just want to take a moment and welcome all of our locations, Bridgeport, Middletown, Hartford, North Campus. Can we put our hands together and say good morning? We love you. Welcome to church. Welcome to church. If you have a Bible, we'll end up in Psalm 139, but uh, I'm excited to be back. My wife and I got a little break and uh, got away from our kids, and we love our kids. We love our kids, but... uh, but it's good to get a little break. We start a teaching series for the next four weeks, going to lead us all the way up to Palm Sunday, and we're calling it Borderlands. So what are, what are Borderlands? Well, Borderlands are the space between two boundaries, right? Borderlands are that uncertain intermediate district, right? Those two, those section between two forces or two boundaries. So uh, I think of... Um, The movie from back in 2004 with Tom Hanks, The Terminal. Don't know if you ever saw the movie, The Terminal, but if you have seen it, it's about this guy in the movie. His name is Victor Noworski from Krakosia. And uh, in the movie, uh, Victor Noworski, who's played by Tom Hanks, arrives at JFK Airport and is trying to get back to his home country, but his home country has recently gone through a civil war. And so they will not permit him to enter his homeland, but they will also not allow him to step into the United States. And so this man... Man in the film is stuck in the red tape of the bureaucracy of the day, unable to leave the terminal. And so he's right in between two forces. And if you're paying attention to the culture around us and to the people around you, you will find that our world is stuck in a borderland, right? In our culture, there are so many different boundaries or borders that have seemed to become unclear over the last specifically few decades, but all the time. So just recently, you know, you think of the last couple weeks, I'm sure you've probably heard and have followed this tragic school shooting in Florida. And when something like this happens, you know, there's a bunch of people that come out and say we need to ban all guns. And then there's a bunch of people that come out and say, no, we need to arm ourselves with more guns. So which one is it? Is it more guns? Or you don't have to shout your opinion, by the way. Is it more guns? Or is it less guns? Or a young lady identifies as male and she says, no, I want to identify as a male. So does she use the ladies room or does she use the men's room? Or do we come up with some other room for her to uh, use the bathroom in, right? These are the real issues of society that I'm sure you're aware of. One person says black lives matter. Another person responds by saying blue lives matter. Another person responds by saying all lives matter. So which one is it? And maybe we've lost the point in the midst of all those conversations. So we're gathering today, don't get quiet on me already, right? We're gathering today because City Church comes together under a specific conviction. And the conviction that we come together under is that there is a wisdom that transcends my opinion. There is a wisdom that transcends your experience. There is a knowledge that we can obtain, a light that we can see that goes beyond your or my understanding of a situation. And so we're here today to humble ourselves and to ask God to reveal to us a wisdom beyond ourselves, all right? A wisdom beyond ourselves. And so we're gonna start today with the topic of really where we all began, the topic of human life, right? What is human life at its core? When did it begin? When did it end? And what is its value? So go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say, you came on a very awkward Sunday, right? You came on a very, no, 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 you didn't. It's good. It's good. It's good. So we're going to start in Psalm 139. You ready? Psalm 139. Here we go. Psalm 139 verse 13 
David says this, for you formed me, my inward parts. You needed me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Your book, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as yet when, as when yet, as yet, there was none of them. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. If you want to jot some notes down today, the title of the sermon is The Womb, the Tomb, and the Groom. The Womb, the Tomb, and the Groom. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning in five locations all across the state of Connecticut to worship Jesus. We come here today humbly. We come here today seeking your face and your wisdom, and we invite your presence, Holy Spirit, into this room right now. God, I know we come from various backgrounds and situations that our histories are so different just in this room today. And so I pray that you would show us not just our own hearts, but more importantly, show us your heart. God, give us a wisdom to see you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 The earliest memory I have, I was two and a half years old. In fact, it's the only memory I have at that young age, but I can remember it so clearly. I was two and a half years old. My mom brought me to see my grandma and my grandma at that time was dying of cancer. And I can remember so vividly walking into my grandmother's room at just under three years old, walking into my grandmother's room and I saw her, she had, you know, tubes, oxygen tubes in her nose and she had like a cap on her head. And I remember thinking to myself, is grandma going swimming? Like, why does she have this cap on her head? But all of her hair had fallen out and she looked, you know, very skeletal. She had lost most of her weight. And I can remember as a small kid walking into that room is the only memory I have from that time. It's actually the only memory I have of my grandmother. She died shortly after that, but walking into that room and, and, and just knowing in my heart that something wasn't right, knowing that her life was slipping away and that something about that was very wrong and very sad. On September 3rd, 2015, my Aunt Mary died. She was 52 years old. 52 years old. I got to the hospital about five minutes after she passed away. And and when I got there, I took her hand. I sat by her bed and I, I took her hand and her hand was still warm. And I looked at her face and, you know, I just began to weep. And obviously there's a, a sadness that comes whenever you lose someone. But it was more than sadness. There was also this gravity, this sense of awareness that her life had slipped away and that that was sacred. I'm not sure if you've ever been by the bedside of someone passing away or if you've ever lost a loved one. Every one of us has a different story in this area. But in those moments, you're not just grieving. You're not just sad. Something inside you innately knows that this thing called life is sacred. And so the question I want to explore for a couple minutes today is how do we know this? How do we know that this life that we live is so sacred? What foundational truth supports the conviction that life is valuable? What foundational truth supports the conviction that life is valuable? Well, philosophers have been wrestling with this for a long time. A long time people have discussed this issue of life and why is it valuable and why should we value specifically human life? And the pervading perspective amongst many top educators and philosophers of our day is what they would call capacities, okay? 
capacities. Human beings, they say, have evolved to, to have certain capacities that put them beyond other species. For example, the capacity to reason, the capacity for moral choices, the capacity for self-consciousness, the capacity to do all of these things makes us different than the animal world, different than nature, and it establishes a certain level of value for the species known as humanity. And so the top educators and philosophers of our day would say human beings have evolved to a place where they have greater capacity, and because of that greater capacity, we should value human life more, all right? That's sort of the philosophy that absorbs the majority of the thinking in the upper echelons of our society. Now, the problem with that way of thinking is what happens when a human being doesn't have those capacities or what happens if a human being loses those capacities, right? So when an elderly man loses his ability to reason, right? Or when a child is born with autism or autism or cerebral palsy or some other issue that they have to face, when they lack those certain capacities, why should we value them to the same degree as an individual who has those capacities? What reasoning do we have for clinging to their life as intrinsically valuable. And the answer that society offers is an awkward silence. An awkward silence. I don't know how much you know about the history of these things, but it was this argument that led the Supreme Court in 1973, Roe v. Wade, to decide that a woman has a right in the United States to terminate a pregnancy, right? The argument was the argument of capacity. What they fundamentally decided was that an unborn child cannot reason, cannot make moral choices, and is not self-conscious. They do not have capacity, therefore they do not have the rights of personhood, right? But if we're honest, all of us in the room, no matter where you fall on these lines, all of us in the room can see that and go, well, isn't... Isn't that reasoning a little bit faulty? Isn't it, isn't it a little strange that they would think that way? Because if that's the way we think about the value of human life, then, then what protects the rights of a child who's two months old, right? That child doesn't have reasoning capacity yet. That child doesn't have the ability to make moral choices yet. So what protects their life or what protects an older person with Alzheimer's that's losing those capacities? Many of us are not aware that it was actually this issue of life that really set Christians apart in the first century as the church began to rapidly grow. They were living in a time where human life was, once again like our day, viewed based upon capacity. And so it was not uncommon for a Greek or for a Roman to have a baby child, oftentimes a girl, and not desire that child and leave the child out in the sun to die. This was a practice that was accepted in that culture, okay? And it was the Christians that came alongside, found those babies dying by themselves, and took them in and begun to raise those children and people said why would they do that but they didn't just do that they then turned around and loved and served and accepted the moms and dads who had left their childs out in the sun to die and so this early church was baffling society because they were at one point loving the unlovable children and at the same point caring for the very parents that had abandoned them And so people stood back and said, what is it about these people that makes them so fundamentally different? And what it was about them that made them so different was that they did not view human value based upon capacity. They valued humans based upon what they called imago Dei, right? Imago Dei, the image of God. 
based upon the image of God. Look how David describes it in Psalm 139. This was their conviction. Take a look. It says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. You, who's you in the passage? It's pretty obvious, right? The you in the passage is God. What David's conviction was, was that God formed me. In the inner secret dwelling of my mother's womb, God formed me. I don't know if you knew that you have a hundred million receptor cells in just one of your eyes. It's amazing how intricately God has formed you. You have 625 sweat glands in every square inch of your skin. Some of you may have more than that, right? But, but at least 625 sweat glands. You have two million pages of information, two million pages in just one of your chromosome, two million pages. But that's not it. He put in Inside of you, a soul that has imagination and art and reason and mathematics and architecture and language and the ability to love. See, God designed you different than every other creature on planet Earth because when He took the blueprint out to form humanity, the blueprint that He used was Himself. This is what Genesis tells us in Genesis chapter one. Look at what it says in the Bible. Interestingly, it says this. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them in the image of God. This is a radically different foundation than capacity, right? If capacity says you're valuable because you can do these certain things or because you have these certain abilities, the believer says, no, 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 you're valuable because you are created in the image of God as a member of the human race. This is where your intrinsic value comes from. David goes further in verse 14. Look, he says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now, that's an interesting little word there in the, in the original Hebrew, wonderful. It's a word that's later used to describe God himself, that God, one of his names, is wonderful. He says, wonderful are your works. And then I like that little phrase. He says, my soul knows it. And I really do believe that that's true, that there's something inside of all of us. The last time you saw a baby born, the last time you stood at a funeral and watched a friend move into the next life, all of those moments, your soul knows it. Your soul knows that we're not cattle. Your soul knows that it's not just a biological shift. There's something more going on there. There's life. There's the image of God. And it matters. It matters. In my mind, you all clapped at that moment, but it's fine. It's fine if you don't want to clap. It's fine. All by myself up here. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. He says, my frame was not hidden from you. I like the poetic imagery that David gives here, the depths of the earth. He's speaking of the darkness of a woman's womb inside this woman's womb this amazing mystery occurs where God weaves together the human being but then he says your eyes saw my unformed substance and that's an important little phrase in the text your eyes saw my unformed substance because he doesn't say your eyes saw an unformed substance right he says your eyes saw mine In other words, I wasn't just a mass of tissue. I wasn't just an unformed substance inside my mother's womb. I was a person. I was me. 
What he was trying to tell us there is personhood, and this is a very important idea, is not attached to how formed I am. And this is an idea that goes all the way through the scripture from beginning to end in Jeremiah chapter 1. It says it like this, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, right? Before you were born, I set you apart, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. In other words, what God's saying there is he's known you before those molecules all came together, before everything started to click and you were running around and talking and eating ice cream and everything else. Before all of that, he knew you. Galatians 5, Paul says it like this, but when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace, he set me apart from my mother's womb. Now, interestingly enough, it's not just scripture that tells us that life begins at this early stage. It's actually science now that tells us the same thing. The American uh, College for Pediatrics says it like this, that the predominance of human biological research confirms that human life begins at conception or fertilization. At fertilization, the human being emerges as a whole genetically distinct living organism. So the moment a sperm, let's just get real here, right? The moment a sperm and an egg meet, 46 unique chromosomes come together and those 46 chromosomes are the foundation of everything you still are physically to this day. A whole human being and within eight weeks that human being has a fingerprint, a unique blood type, all of our organs, a functioning brain, her heart is beating. And so what we see from all of this, both from science and from scripture, a certain conviction begins to grow, all right? A certain conviction begins to grow that you're formed by God, that you were made in God's image, and that personhood begins at conception. Personhood begins, I told you we're going into the borderlands this week. Personhood begins at conception. Now, This obviously has massive implications, right? Personally, it has massive implications socially, it has massive implications politically, massive implications morally, because what does this mean in a nation where 50 million plus children have been aborted? What is this, how do we process this? How are we supposed to think about this? Not choosing Democrat or Republican or some particular party. No, that's not where I'm going. I'm saying how do we process this as followers of Jesus outside any political system as followers of Jesus first? What do we do with this? I remember recently reading the story of Dr. Bernard Nathanson. You may or may not be familiar with him. He was an outspoken doctor uh, in, in favor of, of a woman's right to choose in the 1960s and 70s. In, uh, by the early 70s, he had presided over 60,000 abortions, okay? So either, either he personally performed these or, um, or he presided over them, over 60,000 abortions. It was during this time that he performed an abortion on his own girlfriend, okay? And so he actually performed the abortion to end his own baby's life and that pregnancy. And it wasn't until the early 1970s, the invention of the ultrasound, that something began to change for uh, Dr. Nathanson. And um, it was during this time that he was given the opportunity for the first time to see an ultrasound and to see a baby in the womb. And so one biographer records his first experience with the ultrasound. It says this, the technician applied 
a conductive gel to the woman's abdomen and then began working a handheld sensor over her stomach. As the splatter of the video screen clarified, Nathanson was amazed. He could see a throbbing heart. And many of us that have been in the room during an ultrasound, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When the technician focused closely on the image, Nathanson could see all four chambers pumping. It looked like an animated blossom with such thickness and definition that it took his breath away. He could see all the major vessels leading to and from the cardiac rows. The technician next brought the baby's forehead, eyes, and mouth into focus. Focus. Then by zooming out, the technician showed that the baby had hands folded over its face, right hand, left hand, one each, uh, one uh, on each one, Nathanson counted four fingers and a thumb. The view from above the crown of the baby's head showed the development of the brain where the first folds could be seen. Then the technician scanned the elegant architecture of the spine. Was it a boy or a girl? Just like expected parents, the group couldn't help but wondering it was a girl. Then finally, the technician showed the bone structure of the legs, each foot and five perfect toes. During the course of the scan, Nathanson noticed that his mind was dropping the word fetus in favor of the word baby. Suddenly, everything he had learned about the child in the womb since the entry into the field snapped into the focus. For example, he knew that a fertilized human egg becomes a self-directing entity very early after it had multiplied only to four cells, that the heartbeat begins at as early as 18th day after conception, that at six weeks, the major organ systems are formed. In fact, only uh, 12 weeks in, no new anatomical uh, developments occur. The child simply grows larger and more capable of sustaining life outside the womb. All these had been medical facts to him, but now they coalesced with the grainy image on the screen and crashed into Nathanson's consciousness. He felt a chill along his spine and the air in the room seemed to grow denser, making it hard for him to breathe. His mood swung from exaltation, from new knowledge, to a brow-sweating pain. As the question hit him, how many babies just like this little girl had he himself cut to pieces? How many human lives had he taken? This is where things get serious, right? Now, there's been a debate for over 40 years about when human life begins and implantation and and fertilization, all these questions. But as we reflect just on what simply the scripture seems to be saying pretty clearly, that God knew our unformed substance, that our personhood is not based upon how formed we are in the womb. And even what science is telling us, we start to have to wonder, is it wisdom for you and I, if we really do believe that God has a knowledge above our own, is it wisdom for us to mince words about the image of God? Should we be making these close calls trying to justify certain things. See, some of us in the room, I think many of us in the room, might fall into the category where we'd say, listen, Justin, I would never have an abortion myself. I don't believe that that's correct, but I definitely support those who have the right to do that. And that, honestly, especially in New England, seems like a pretty measured response, a pretty calculated concept to say, okay, I want to support the rights of others, but I may not do that myself. I may not, you know, uh, participate in that behavior. But, and and that, at, the, at the surface level, that seems like a pretty justifiable way to think about things. But when you step back and you look at the, the, the kind of the scales of history, you start to realize that that argument has gotten you humanity into a lot of trouble over the years. In fact, it was the same argument that many white people used before the Civil War broke out when slavery was still legal. They would step back and say, hey, you know, honestly, I don't believe in slavery, but but I do support the other's right to have slaves, and so I'm not going to get into the middle of that. I I just want to stand there. Or it's the same argument that the Germans used in the 1930s when they said, you know, I know that it's not right to throw a bunch of Jews into a work camp, but, you know, I'm going to support the government's right to make those decisions. It's not my job to get in the middle of that. It's not 
my job to flaunt my opinion. Is it possible, friends, that our sense of reason is beginning to border on madness? I just learned recently that you can spend up to a year in prison if you tamper with the egg of a bald eagle, but to this day right now, 125,000 babies are being legally aborted across planet Earth every single day. Something's a little weird here, is it not? Something's a little strange in the way that we think. How is it that we can reconcile a conviction that scripture is true and at the same time a support for abortion? But there's two sides to this. There's two sides to this, you know. And unfortunately and tragically, far too often, it's the same people that say they love the baby that hate the mom. And that's not God's heart. That's not God's heart. Because if you really believe in Imago Dei, if you really believe in the image of God, it should drive us to do anything and everything we can to honorably protect every human being. And at the same time, it should drive us to love and forgive and receive the parents that have chosen abortion. You're here today, and maybe, I'm sure there's, there's many in the room and across our campuses, maybe so far you disagree with almost everything I've said. Maybe you're in a position where you say, well, Justin, I just, and, you're, and your mind is kind of racing, and you're justifying, and you're kind of coming up with your own thoughts and feelings about this, or, or maybe you're in the room right now, and if you really do some soul searching, you're the boyfriend that pressured the girlfriend to go and deal with this and move on with life. Or maybe you're the parent that spoke to your daughter, found out what was going on, and just decided to look the other way and not really deal with the issue. Or maybe you're the young lady who was 19 with her whole life ahead of her, just going into college, and decided this can't change my direction, this can't railroad my life. It's so much easier to have a 10-minute procedure and move on. One in four women in the United States, one in four women will have an abortion in their lifetime. There's many of us in the room, in fact, I don't think there's probably hardly anyone in the room that's not impacted at some level by this reality. And what you need to hear today is if even as I say this, that cold chill goes down your spine, even as I say this, a little discomfort starts to stir in your own heart, your mind starts to race to justify things, and that cloud of guilt starts to swarm over you. If you're here today and you don't even realize how much this has impacted you, you never connected the depression to what happened five years ago, you never connected the anxiety, the suicidal thoughts, the fear to the guilt and the shame that's been chasing you for years because of something that happened in your past, what you need to see today is that the God of Scripture is not standing back with his arms closed rejecting you. His arms are wide open and he's crying out to you and he's saying, I love you. I want to receive you. I want to restore you. I want to heal you. And I am the only one who can remove that burden of guilt from your soul and give you peace again. I'm here to give you life. That's his plan for you. That's his purpose for you. You don't have to stand out in the distance feeling ashamed and guilty. You need to come into the light and be healed and loved and restored by a father who knows your story and isn't ashamed to call you his child. But there's more. Verse 16. Verse 16, look what it says. It says, your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. See, the issue of life and the belief of the value of human life goes far beyond just its beginning. it, 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 It embodies every aspect of human life, every part of human life. And in the text here we see 
That David believes that God knows every part of his life, that he's planned every aspect of his life. I'm sure you've seen all over social media and all over the news this last week that Billy Graham passed away, one of the great voices of Christ across the nations in our generation, maybe the greatest evangelist of all time. He died at 99 years old, and many have asked the question, you know, he spent the last decade of his life battling cancer and Parkinson's and many other illnesses. And many would say, well, why did God let him suffer like that? Why did he linger so long? Wouldn't it have made more sense for him to just end his own life, assisted suicide, just move on to the next life, avoid suffering? Ecclesiastes chapter 7 gives us some insight into this. It says this, it says, do not be excessively wicked, do not be a fool. Why should you die before your, what's the next word? Before your time. Now, this is a very important idea about life. And the important idea here is that you don't get to choose your time, that God does, that God has marked out your days, just like David said, that there's a specific number that he's given you. Or you could say it like this, you might want to jot this thought down, the days you will live match the purpose you were given. Come on, that's a huge idea. The days you will live match the purpose. You, you don't have to worry about dying. Trust in Christ and the days you will live will match the purpose you were given. So you're here today and you feel like I'm past my time. My loved ones have left. I don't feel like I'm here for any purpose, friend. That's a lie. If you're still alive, God has a purpose for you. If your heart's still beating, he still wants you here and he has a unique and specific assignment for you, your job is not over until your life expires. See, Billy Graham, God gave him 99 years, 99 years to go after the one. 99 years to go after the one, and Billy was faithful to do it. And God calls you to be faithful too. So how do we treat those that have less capacity? How do we treat those who are intellectually impaired? How do we treat those who are elderly? One study recently found that elderly Americans are robbed of, you ready, $36.5 billion a year financially. Robbed of $36.5 billion a year, and 90% of elderly abuse that occurs, occurs from a family member. And what that means is across our campuses, there are those of us in the room today that you've been taking some more off of grandma's check. You've been removing some more out of grandpa's savings, out of your father's retirement, because it makes your life a little comfortable, and he can't seem to think through it anyways. And maybe it's not best for him, but it's certainly best for you. And you say, it's not a big deal. It's not that big of an issue. I'm just going to do it because it benefits me most, and he doesn't even need to know. And friend, what you need to realize is that when you take advantage of someone who has less capacity, what you're doing in that moment is you are desecrating the image of God. You are violating a covenant between you and God, and you are dishonoring the very image of God. God has a purpose for every day. He has a purpose for your days. Look how he wraps it up, verse 17. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. I awake and I am still with you. What does he mean? Well, certainly he's talking about every morning when he wakes up, right? I awake and I'm still with you. But the text infers something else there too, more than physical sleep. The writer's not just confident that when he wakes up, he'll see God. What he's inferring there is that he's confident that when he dies, he'll see God. That when he dies, He'll see God. And this is really the whole essence of the entire text and the entire reason we're gathering today is that you're not just skin and bones. This is the deep conviction of the follower of Christ. You're not just 
flesh and blood. There's something more to you. You are a soul. You're a human being that is eternal in your essence. And this is actually what causes David to stand back and wonder. This is what causes him to go, this is amazing. This is profound. This is awe-inspiring. That human beings carry intrinsic value. Human beings carry an intrinsic value. That child with Down syndrome, that young boy with cerebral palsy, that elderly person who has lost their ability to see and hear, that baby that can't yet be seen in a mother's womb. The deep conviction that we discover today that we must build our lives upon. In fact, it's the only conviction that makes sense when this capacities argument falls apart is that human beings, eternal beings, carry an intrinsic value, a value that goes beyond just what you can do for us, a value that comes from the image of God. And you might be at a place where you say, well, how valuable is a human being? You know, if this person has very little capacity, how valuable are they? Some would say that even a sermon like this causes more question than it does answer. And it's important to wrestle with these questions because it's these questions that propel us to a different way of living. How should I honor a human life in this situation? How should I set apart and honor the image of God in this scenario? What do I do with it? How valuable is a human being, really? And the only place we can get an answer is not from ourselves. The only place we can get an answer is from God. And if you want to know how valuable a human being is, you only have to look one place. You only have to look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus came on this earth, we said we were talking about the womb, the tomb, and the groom. He came as a groom in pursuit of his bride. He came as the creator God in love with his creation made in his image. And he came to rescue us from the brokenness of our own souls and of our own spirits. And so when he came, he lived a perfect life, the life that you and I never could live. He died a substitutionary death so that when one man from Nazareth hung on a cross outside Jerusalem and died for the sins of the world and shed his blood when that blood touched the soil of the earth, it washed away the sin that lives in your heart 2,000 years after that event. He cleansed you from the beginning of your life to the end of your life of all guilt and sin because of the sacrifice of his cross. And then he rose from the dead to tell you that the check had cleared, that the debt was paid, that you were forgiven forever so that by faith in his name alone, you could receive a complete cleansing of all your guilt and all your debt and all your shame and all your sorrow and you can be accepted blameless before God. That's how valuable you are. That's how valuable you are. And so if you're here today and maybe something I've said in the last few minutes just, just speaks to the weight that you carry. Friend, there's only one place that that weight can be removed from your shoulders. There's only one place that you can find relief from the guilt and the shame of yesterday. And that place is the cross. That's where he wants you to go. That's where he wants you to find real healing. For me, this topic of human life 
is a, uh, is a very personal topic, something that has real personal implication in my life. 1980, my older brother was born to my mom and dad, and uh, at my mom's six-week checkup, the doctor discovered, six weeks after she had my brother, 1980, the doctors discovered that my mom had cervical cancer, and they told her that they would need to remove her cervix and part of the lining of her uterus and that she would never be able to have babies again, and that if she were to ever, by some miracle, get pregnant again, she wouldn't be able to carry a baby because the ability to form a mucus plug had been removed from her body, and so she was no longer able to hold a baby in her womb, even if she were to miraculously get pregnant. Well, two and a half years later, mom gets pregnant with me. She told me this this week. I thought it was interesting. It turns out that the scar tissue that had formed from her previous surgery was enough to hold me in place for those nine months in her womb. And God has a word for you through that. As soon as my mom said it, I heard the Holy Spirit speak to me for you today. I heard him just speak to my spirit for you. And I heard the Lord say so simply that the scars from your last season are going to hold in place the miracle that he has for your next season. That the scars from your last season, I'm talking to you today, are going to hold in place the miracle that he has for your next season. Four months into my mom's pregnancy with me, she found out that she now had uterine cancer. And at that time, there were twice as many abortions happening in the United States as there are today. And the doctors just said, well, clearly that's the appropriate response. You need to abort this child or the cancer may spread or grow. And my parents decided not to have an abortion, but instead to fight for my life, risking their own lives and fighting for my life so that now, 35 years later, I could stand up here and talk to all of you and say, life is valuable. Eternal beings carry intrinsic value. God's got a purpose for you. Live your life like it's sacred. Treat others like their life is sacred. Don't judge a man on his capacity. Judge him on the image of God and value him and value her because they reflect God's image in his glory and in his beauty. That's his purpose. That's what makes us unique. That's what causes people to stand back and say, why do these people love like that? How is it that they could love the unborn child and love the one who aborted the unborn child? How is it that they could have that kind of love? And the only answer is the image of God and the cross of Christ. Would you stand to your feet with me this morning at all of our locations? Statistics tell us that one out of every four women has had an abortion. That means that there's dozens of dozens of men in the room that have either looked the other way or encouraged the procedure. There are parents, there are sisters, there are brothers, there are best friends. I don't know what your story is. Maybe 
there's someone with a handicap who lives next door that you avoid every day. Maybe there's an elderly family member that you never take the time for or you take a little off the side from. I don't know where God's speaking to your heart today, but I just want you at this time to come to Jesus. And maybe you find yourself in a place where that's the last thing you want to do. You say, Justin, I want to run away. I am not coming back to this place. Friend, running away is not going to get you anywhere. Run to him. Let him heal you. Let him forgive you. Let him restore you. There is a God who can take the scars of yesterday and use them to hold up the miracle of tomorrow. And he's here in this room, in Middletown, in Bridgeport, in Hartford, in North Campus, right here in New Haven. He's in this room to meet you now. Would you close your eyes? Come on, all across these rooms, let's just close our eyes. Holy Spirit, would you come? Isaiah said it like this, to all who mourn, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, and festive praise instead of despair. Oh, Spirit of Jesus, come. Spirit of Jesus, move in the room right now. Breathe upon your people and draw us to the cross. Draw us to the place of encounter with you where we are exposed before you and made whole in you. I sense your presence in the room now, Jesus. And I invite you to come as we sing. In Jesus' name.